Welcome to episode 179 of Control the Controllables. And today, I'm actually putting myself out of my comfort zone a little bit. You know, this has been a tennis podcast over the the last 178 episodes. We have delved into the world of coaching gymnastics with Valerie Condosfield. We've had David Walsh, the amazing journalist who talked about his encounter for many years with Lance Armstrong. And this is another one that's a little bit outside the box in Henry Winter. For, for me, the, the best football journalist that's out there. He used to work for the, for the Telegraph, now works for the Times. I followed his work for, for many years, as, as of all of my family. And the opportunity came up to get Henry on the podcast And I didn't want to pass that up because ultimately what we're trying to do here at Control the Controllables is we're trying to unpack not just tennis, we're trying to get under the under the bonnet of of sport, of of people, the way that they work, the way that they tick. And I think there's so many transferable parts that happen across sport and across life that I, I really wanted to see where the conversation would take us. And it took us down lots of different roads. And yes, there's some football talk. Yes, there's some Newcastle United talk, my beloved football team. But there's also lots of talk and important topics that we touch on, you know, including women's sport and equality in sport and not just within professional players, but also the ecosystem around that. So I'm sure you're going to absolutely love listening to Henry but a couple of bits around tennis as well. I, I have to mention, firstly, GB Girls started in Glasgow today, their Billie Jean King Cup campaign. We had Caroline Garcia winning out in Texas, the end-of-year WTA finals, and our big friend Igor Tech finished the year world number one. A shout-out to Neil Skopsky and his partner, Wesley Kuloff, that have finished the year world number one. Uh, it's just such an incredible, incredible achievement. And, and then Lloyd Glasspool, someone I know very well, coaching him from the age of 10, has finished the year, uh, will be finishing the year next week in Turin as him and his partner, Harry Halavara, have made it into the ATP end-of-year finals. Just absolutely incredible to see what somebody can achieve when you when you put your mind to something. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to be heavily involved in Lloyd's tennis for 15 years from a very young age. And, you know, you keep going, you keep turning up every single day. Uh, there'll be moments across that way. I'm sure Lloyd would have thought about giving up. People around him would have thought, well, he's never going to be a professional tennis player. And here he is, the sixth best team in the world, making a living doing what he loves at the age of 29. And I strongly believe will go on even further. So a big, big well done to them. And then lastly, episode 108, we had a young, brash Holger Rune who came on and I was blown away with the conversation. It was short, it was sweet. There wasn't a whole lot to talk about because all that Holger wanted to talk about or could talk about was was tennis. And at the mere age of 17 at that time, he didn't have a great experience. But in that short conversation, what I took from it, this guy had belief and he had it in abundance and it was absolutely incredible. And he, he talked about, you know, having the belief he was going to be world number one from the age of seven. 
You know, he is quoted many times of saying that he wants to win more Roland Garrises than Rafael Nadal. You know, people have laughed at it. You know, I've had discussions with people in the tennis world. Where's he going to get to? You know, this belief is so strong. Is he going to plateau at 50 in the world, 60 in the world? 10 in the world, and I just don't see it happening. I think he's going to go on. He's going to have an incredible career. Granted, he will have his challenges, but it's great to see another another male player make their way onto the world, world scene, beating Novak Djokovic last weekend in Paris to win his first ATP Masters 1000 event. So lots of tennis talk there. Lots more tennis to come as we as we go into the last couple of weeks of of the season before we prepare for the Australian Open but first sit back listen it's entertaining there's lots of great stories there's lots of connections across the sports and I'm going to pass you over to Henry Winter so Henry Winter a big welcome to control the controllables how are you doing no I'm very pleased to be on thanks for inviting me it's uh, it's an honor, and so are you ready? People don't know this, but this is a this is a tennis quiz for the next thirty minutes. Are you ready for the tennis quiz? I think it's going to be six love, six love to you. <laughs> so, but I I won't I won't push you, even though I know you have a tennis court in your garden that's used as a five a side pitch. So I think that tells me a little bit that we don't want to be going too deep into tennis. But ultimately, sport is sport. You know, we 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 love we love sport. And so many of these topics come across in both areas. And I and I can't not start, Henry, you know, in in our world, in the tennis world, you know, potentially our two biggest ever stars, Roger Federer, Serena Williams. We've we've said goodbye to them with lots of Kleenexes, not being a dry eye in the house the last few weeks. You know, from from the outside, what's been your take on that? Too great to transcend their sport. I think you've seen, as you would know, the reaction to Roger and Serena. And it's when you refer to people by their Christian names, it's almost like you're getting to sort of Pele status yeah, because yeah. they're just so well known. I mean, if I sort of talk to someone, I said, oh, Roger's retired. You know, they, they know who that is. Serena's retired. I just think when you look at it again, looking at it very much from the outside, you what I do know is that, looking at it from a football perspective, those who are at the very top often have this grace about them, grace as people, grace of movement, grace of playing. And I think you would associate that word grace with Roger Federer and Serena Williams. The way they they conduct themselves, they're fantastic ambassadors for the game. I don't know what they're going to be doing going forward, where they're going to be working for their amazing foundations, another you know reminder of their quality of people as well as uh, sports people. Uh, but I just hope they're associated in the game in one way because they've inspired so many people, particularly when you look at Serena's journey and her journey with her sister. Was it from the uh, the, the, the public courts? Of, was it Dallas, Texas? I can't remember where, where, she, where she's from because she's, she doesn't seem to belong to America. She seems to belong to the world. Serena, there's that sort of element, and Roger as well. I mean, Roger, never met him, but Federer, you know, he's just a he just comes over as a very classy guy with his interviews. And I saw just on television that event they had in, I think it was in London, and the four of them were going, was it Team Europe? I mean, the four of them were going out for dinner, 
And I found that extraordinary way because these guys would on the on the court, they would be at each other's throats, you know, to win. And yet they were, you know, in a sort of you know dignified way. But to get to that level that Serena Williams, Walter Federer, wherever you are in sport, you've got to have that killer instinct. You've got to have that visceral hunger to defeat the opponent. And yet it was all very civilized, you know, and it was quite sort of emotional. And I think they were almost in tears as as they were saying goodbye to. Walter Federer. And I think that is a sign of greatness that these rivals are also friends. Absolutely, Henry. And I, and I think my, my next bit on that, to bring it back into football. Thank you. Good. If we, if we <laughs> take that, I guess the comparison of Roger and Serena, and this will actually subtly lead into a point that we'll get to later on in the, in the chat. The comparison is Messi and Ronaldo. It's, it's not Messi and Beth Mead. It's it's Messi and Ronaldo, you know. And and I think would would there be that global adoration, that that admiration, you know, that that's happened? Like you say, Serena almost belongs to the world. And I think in a sport of tennis, we do get that. And and everyone was emotional. Everyone felt it. It's not far away from Messi and Ronaldo moving on from the sport as as players. You would think, you know, what's what's going to be the reaction when that happens? There will be a stop all the clocks moment when Lionel Messi retires, because even though he doesn't have the sort of you know the force of personality of uh, Federer or Williams, he's quite low key, and obviously it's a team game, so the sort of the attention is slightly spread, even even with a player of Messi's caliber. I think there will be that, wow, we've lost one of the greats, not simply of the current generation, but of all time. I mean, I would put, it's difficult to compare generations, but I would put Messi in the top three players of all times with Maradona and Pelé. And then you can argue over orders, you can argue over achievements, but it, it definitely, again, there is this grace with Messi. The way he plays, he doesn't really cheat. I mean, I did a book with Michael Carrick a couple of years ago. So what is like? What is he like to play again? And he said it is like trying to trap Mercury. You know, you just go in on him, and then he just sort of moves away, and he takes. He just because of the sort of low center of gravity, the height, he turns so quickly. So there is that joy of watching him play. The way he flows like a sort of river through a defense. But, but just the joy he brings and the thought of him not being in the sport I cover anymore. I mean, it actually kind of goes to the heart as well as to the head with that emotion. But you know what we're like in this world? We're always looking for, for the next icons, the next generation. And I saw um, Erling Haaland at the weekend for oh. City against Manchester United. And you look at his physical gifts you look at his natural gifts obviously his mother's heptathlete father of footballer um and you just look at the next generation and then Mbappe is still there as well so you know there is an element and maybe this is the, the slightly cynical ruthless nature of football you know the king is dead long live the king when Messi and Ronaldo you know when the two of them are coming to the end of their career I still think Messi's probably got I mean, Messi will be pushing for the Ballon d'Or when he's 50. He'll just have that in him. He's just got that love of the game. And what I like about Messi is that you can just imagine in a few years' time, he, he will be on the beach in Barcelona, La Barcelona, just sort of having a kickabout with kids because the love of the game is within him. And Ronaldo as well, completely different, more a sort of self-creative rather than a sort of God-given talent like Messi's. 
But again, there is that. Yeah, when Ronaldo goes as well, that will be that will strike the English heart because he's been so much part of it. Obviously, started at Manchester United after Sporting Lisbon, and then obviously came back to, to to United. So that will be huge. But in terms of Federer and Serena Williams, it's been lovely to look again from the outside the sheer love that they. You know that they stir in people, and I'm not a fan of applause in press conferences. I do think we are sort of slightly neutral observers. We should be, you know, that that British stiff upper lip is still there. Um, but I still think they are probably the reaction from a lot of the tennis writers who've worked with these two greats covered their careers. I think there's more than affection for them, more than respect for them. I think there's a genuine love for these two. And the way that you were speaking there, Henry, it was like when you describe Messi, you could have been describing Roger Federer. The way that you describe Cristiano Ronaldo, you could be, you could be describing Rafael Nadal. You know, and I, and I think that's that's often the beauty of sport as well. That that contrasting, that contrasting style of you know, man made to to natural, you know, skill to skill to technique. You know, getting getting those things. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned it, Dal. I mean, I'm old enough to have watched and covered his uh, his uncle play for uh, for Barcelona. He was. I mean, it was interesting. You know, obviously listening to your podcast, the. There is a quite a connection between football and uh, tennis. Um, I mean, the last year I've interviewed Hugo Lloris, who I think was nationally ranked tennis player growing up in France, and Casper uh, Schmeichel as well. I mean, one of my favourite pitch. I think Peter Schmeichel used to play tennis a bit. My favourite site of Peter Schmeichel was him and Eric Cantona in a very nice hotel on the banks of the Bosphorus in Istanbul before one of Manchester United's games against Galatasaray. And they weren't playing tennis, though I can imagine. The two of them were playing chess. And I just thought, wow, you've got two of the most, two of the most ferocious competitors in the game sort of working out the, 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 the Queen's Gambit. But I just thought you were going to say 1996. I go back to St. James's Park and Eric oh, Cantona. Wow. Peter Schmeichel, they, Philippe they, uh, Philippe yeah. well, that, well, yeah, well, that was, was it, so it was, it was the, 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 the game when Newcastle slaughtered them. Yeah, the 5 nil game on a Sunday. No, well, Sunday. that, well, that gives me a smile. And when I used to play, I used to write down what, when I was struggling mentally on the tennis court, uh, my coaches said to me, write something down that makes you happy. So I, so I had, a, so I had, a, I had a bit of paper in my bag that said Newcastle five, Manchester United nil, with all of the goal scorers. Brilliant. I remember Darren Peacock, I think, scored the first, and then then Ginola, and then it came, then I think Ferdinand maybe, and then yeah. the Balbear goal to to make it five nil. But I'm talking about the one nil when Newcastle were going to win the league, and and we couldn't get the ball past Schmeichel. Mm. And then blinking Cantonars, he did every single time at the, at the end of that season, popped up at the back post to score to win 1-0, which was ultimately the match that that went on to win Man United that league. So um, you can come on my podcast, Henry, but don't be talking... <laughs> Don't be talking too much about Schmeichel and Cantona. Finish your story, and then we'll have a little rule here: no more, no more Schmeichel and Cantona. I'll I'll move it around the Schmeichel household. So his son Casper was a good tennis player when he was younger, and I, I just said to him, sort of, threw in the comment: Are there any advantages from having been a tennis player? or enjoying tennis and going to Wimbledon and watching it and being a goalkeeper. And I was thinking in that sort of slightly sort of layman's mind of mine, 
the speed off the line, which you obviously, which is the essence of, particularly in the serve and volley era of, of tennis. Um, and he said, yeah, he would watch, I think it wasn't, I think it was, anyway, one of the great volleyers, one of those who just served and then sprinted, you, you would know better. I can't remember which player it was, but he said he would analyse that player, that speed of reaction, because with a, particularly in the, the rules now with VAR and the um, assistants and the referees, just checking the goalkeeper stays on the line for penalties. And also just the natural flow of the game, your speed off the, off the line as a goalkeeper to narrow the angle of an opposing attacker coming in. Um, he, he, yeah, he said he found that tennis was really important for him in developing. I asked uh, Jan Oblak, the Atletico Madrid goalkeeper, and he, he was similar. He said that he'd learned from tennis as well. So and I think that's good. And I mean, we have this great academy system in this country where I guess it's the same in, in tennis, where kids go in very young. And they don't necessarily have that familiarity or absorption of lessons and skills, mechanical as well as sort of mental skills from other sports. But a lot of footballers who've got to the top have, have, have also played in other sports, yeah, which, gives them, which gives them awareness and, and, and what have you. I mean, there's Scott Parker, um, ex-England player. He was a very good rugby player as a kid. He was a scrum half. And his dad... Say, he must be a scrum half. Yeah, he was a scrum <laughs> half with his height, but he was, he was very quick and, you know, read the game. And um, his dad said, oh, you're going to have... A, dad was a big rugby fan. He said, Scott, you're going to have a great career as a, a rugby player. And he was going, no, no, no. I keep on having these big, hairy number eights coming and <laughs> knocking me over. I'd rather be a nice little ball playing midfielder. So look, you can learn from, from other sports. And I think particularly for goalkeepers and that awareness acceleration off the line to incoming danger, I think particularly works, obviously, yeah. for goalkeepers. No, no, absolutely. Well, we, we massively at the, at the academy out in Spain, we massively encourage our players to do multi sports, and, and and I think there's I think there's there's two things for me, and I again a lot of the tennis players, I mean like you, Andy Murray's a very good footballer, Rafael Nadal's a very good footballer, you know you'll tend to get a lot of the tennis players that played football, and and when you analyse that, all sports comes down to management of time and space, you know. So if you think if you think the best footballers are the ones that are able to create space and, and move the ball fast. So they're controlling time, you know, or defenders are able to, to shut space, you know, and give the player less time on the ball, you know, and, te and tennis is the same. So you, if you have a basic understanding of controlling of time and space, which all sports do that in a different way, then it sets you in a good place. And the second point for me you know, you watch the best players and we take uh, Haaland. I, I, I smile when you mention him because I think, you know, from a mentality point of view, and I would imagine you guys will see this in the media. I think the players give a lot away and he, he came in and some people you can see a trembling on the, the big, the big signing fee and you know, that the transfer fees that are going out there, he just as cool as a cucumber in every single thing that he does. And that comes into what we would talk about performer skills, you know, your ability to, to perform under pressure, your ability to, to, to be focused, to be switched on, you know, and I remember him saying a couple of weeks ago, my dream is to touch the ball five times and score five goals. 
you know, and to have to have that sort of outlook and and to bring the goalkeeper bit in, Henry, I use it all the time with the younger kids is I say, look, you are saving. If I know they've got a passion for tennis, I'll say you are saving a penalty to win the World Cup for your country right now. You know, how do you look? And it's that kind of getting ready, performer look, you know, eyes sticking out your head, good athletic position, you know, and, and these, these, these go across all, all the different sports. And I think for anybody listening, it is so important that, that your child is playing multiple sports, you know, one, you don't know what their passion's going to be, you know, Scott Parker, was it rugby? Was it football? But two, the, the, the way that it transfers across, but, but Henry, before, I move into a couple of bigger subjects. You know, you are the subject of this podcast. You know, people want to know Henry Winter a little bit more. And, you know, where, tell us about a couple of things. What, I, what I'd what i love to know is one, what was your sport when you were younger or, or sports, you know, and to, to what level did you play? But secondly, how did you get into the industry of journalism that you are excelling in today? I quite like the idea of being paid to wander around the world, going to places I can't even spell um, without Google Maps and writing about football. I just, I was, I had a sort of, you know, fairly straightforward. Uh, growing up in London, I was a choir boy in Westminster Abbey. So probably a bit different, but it was, it was quite emotional actually watching the, uh, the you know, the, the, the Queen's funeral yeah, the other sure. day. And, and just obviously everyone was totally absorbed in it. And I was going, that was my Arsenal. Um, so, but I just played football, obsessed with football. It's it's all been football, and what it's done. I mean, just coming back to tennis and talking about tennis players, actually, as goalkeepers. I just remember one game we had. We had a sponsors game, and the sponsor had some top tennis players on their uh, books and top sports people. So, I think just a few years back, about twenty years back, so. Daley Thompson played up front and I played up front with him, which was just ridiculous because he was, he was a really good footballer as well as obviously being, you know, one of the greatest decathletes, athletes the world's ever seen. And he was fantastic. And I was sort of huffing and puffing around it. But the opposing goalkeeper was Tim Henman. And that was when Gentleman Tim and all that, you know, and strawberries and cream and did he have that sort of hunger because of his background and all that. And I saw close up, okay, it was only in a, sponsors charity match but Tim Henman was in goal for the opposite My, his ferocious will to win and then someone explained to him as I said well this is a you know I cover footballers I've seen what the hunger and Henman's got that hunger and I was I was through one-on-one on goal and we've been told listen be careful because Henman was playing obviously at an exceptionally high level at the time so just respect it you know in those games it's like you know, you absolutely respect, you should respect the opposition anyway. So I thought, well, if he comes out, I'm going to hurdle him or just, you know, just make sure there's absolutely no physical contact. He came out and just cleared me out. And I went out, I laughed, laughing. I said, penalty. And I think it was a penalty. It was a penalty. And I had to have jumped out of the way because he was absolutely coming through me. And then he was just going, you know, that was not a penalty. And I just thought, I changed my view of, I've never met him before. I've obviously been to Wimbledon and seen him play and, you know, admired, you know, that side and hoped he would win as, a, as an Englishman, Wimbledon, you know, tennis is coming home and all that. And then I just, I actually thought, well, this is a really, really competitive individual. 
So I thought that was good. And that's as always, but I often think back about that is that you don't really know until you see. So if I think I'm going to criticize a player, has he got the hunger? I often think of that element, you know, they, it shows itself in different ways. Um, so yeah, so look, I was fortunate upbringing in London, love football, always, always played, always went to sort of games all over London and then went to university and the university were absolutely brilliant because they basically said, as long as you're in the first team and sports editor of the student newspaper, because I knew what I wanted to do from 14, 15. Okay. Um, they said, you know, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll let you miss a few lectures. So I played non-league in Scotland, still got the scars and loved it. I was the only English person in the football club. I was certainly the only public school person in the football club. And um, they absolutely ripped me to bits, as you would expect, for the first sort of, well, the first four years. No, for the first sort of <laughs> couple of months. And then as football, you play sport. It's a meritocracy. It's about can you do it? Do you fit in? have you got an ego whatever and it was for wonderful years so and then the day after my last exam which I think was on Tolstoy or Dostoevsky again I think it was Tolstoy because I could spell Tolstoy I couldn't spell Dostoevsky I was doing Russian literature for some reason I thought it was maybe an easy course I'd seen a couple of Tolstoy's films um the, the next day I just went straight down to London and hammered on doors in Fleet Street until one of them opened I want to I want to carry on with that Henry but you've just made me smile so much with the Tim Henman story and, and that I can't not share my Tim Henman story because it's quite similar and so going back to 1996 you know around about that time obviously Euros you know the Euro time and it what was the Lipton Championships which was um, the famous tournament in Miami and the Lawn Tennis Association had taken all of the top juniors out to Miami for a big training block, you know, a big training camp, which was all very nice, but very hard work, as you would imagine. And earlier on in the training camp, we played football, as we often did. And the football became so competitive, you know, nearly all of us had played for clubs. You know, I played for Middlesbrough when I was young, young. You know, some of them had played for Newcastle, Man United. You know, the, the, we, we had some decent footballers. And as we're playing on Miami beach, they'd wound me up a little bit, which was relatively easy to do to a 16 year old from, from Newcastle. And uh, I'd, I'd retaliated in probably not the, the way that I'm most proud of, but the next day, the next weekend, Tim Henman, who was world number three at the time and was playing the Lipton championships the following week, he turned up to play in the big 11 aside match that we'd been talking about. And I, I'll tell the story from the start. The match started and Tim Henman was no more than two inches away from me for, for the whole first 15 minutes of the match. And he was literally holding on to my shorts. And as we went in, the ball went and we went in for a tackle. And, and as, as I went in, I was on the floor. The next thing I knew, sand was being kicked into my face. I just had, I had a whole face full of sand. And I was, I wasn't good at keeping my temper. So I stood up and I think maybe an expletive came out and I looked at this person and, and just seeing red. I've never thrown a punch in my life, but I was, I was close. And I looked at it, who the person was, and it was Tim Hemman. And be, as I saw him, I kind of just went and just, and, and just 
moved away. You know, if but it you was imagine such... if you'd thrown a punch, no, at no, no, Tim well, Henman, I have since... it, it would have been like pushing Nelson off his column. There would have been <laughs> I, questions I, in the house. I have since thought about this because coming from Newcastle, you're already frowned upon in the sport of tennis. You know, it's a little bit of a, a southern sport. So the lad, I saw the headlines flash before my eyes. Thug from Newcastle knocks out our golden child or whatever it might be. And the match ca- carried on. A side note I don't need to say, but my ego does, as I scored a hat-trick and we won the match. And as, and as we were walking off Miami Beach, Tim Fairplaytrum came up to me and said, look, Dan, I'm really sorry about that. He said, uh, the coaches had told me you had a temper so my job was to wind you up so that you got sent off. <laughs> <laughs> so then it was, so then we're 11 against 10. So fair play, he, he spoke up about it, but that that ferocious competitive spirit was certainly there. And this was three days before he started the tournament. Just a, just a side question to that. When you've got a temper like you have, and all the top athletes have that far within, how do you, channel that temper positively because it can be a great fuel i think look i mean it's something we do a lot on now and and i think if we go back to those days as well i was living at bisham abbey at the time at the Mm. national tennis school so i would have seen you henry i'm sure at that time and you know we used to obviously get a glimpse of all the footballers and i think it was the 98 year when glenn hoddle glenn hoddle brought in was it eileen jury yeah so yeah and, and at that time, it was frowned upon. It was like, how weird is this coach bringing in some kind of sports nut, sports psych nut? So, so, and I go back to us at that age, when we had a sports psychologist, we used to just laugh and take the piss, if I'm honest. It, we, because she was, it was a former landlady. I mean, she was, uh, she was not, you know, she didn't have any qualifications and, and she, she went in and you know when Ray Parler she put her hands on Ray Parler's head and Ray Parler went short back and sides please it was a sort of slightly skeptical generation but for Darren, Ander, for Darren Anderton he, he was absolutely 100% believing in her but I think football needed to to, to go down a sort of slightly more qualified intellectual route to, uh, yeah. to psychology but I think Henry but to, to answer your question I think if I'm honest I didn't have the support in that because at the time and, and when you're young, and this is the thing with tennis and look, I'm not, I, I can't say it's fully on football, but, and, and there's going to be the challenges with football, but tennis is an individual sport, you know? So you're, you don't get like tennis academies don't pick up players and pay for them to come and play at their tennis academy. You actually are paying to, go to the tennis academy you know the national tennis academy of bisham abbey that did happen to me um but you are you are on your own and you and, and if i look back to that period i didn't have the support i was i was insecure i didn't believe i was any good you know even though i was doing very well and i was one of the best juniors in the world you know in doubles so so if i fast forward now to 2022 I think that support is so much better in place because if I even take myself as a coach and I, I brought a sports psychologist on board from Australia who consults with the Academy. And, and my whole concept is we are training up as tennis coaches to be sports psychologists in the day to day, you know? So I think in, in terms of how most places are going now, there is those extra layers of support. So 
taking taking that emotion and that anger, you know, it's about ultimately about tolerating the difficult emotions that you have and still being able to put your mind onto something that's most important. And, and that's now my view of what mental toughness is. You know, it's not the, the, the mentally tough athletes or people in this world are, are absolutely still experiencing difficult emotions. <laughs> you can't switch the emotion off. Whereas I think there was, there was a, the, a an era of just suck it up, just deal with it. There was an era of where well, you shouldn't be feeling that, you know, there was, there was such an old fashioned way. So I think probably a lot of my anger came from almost internal battles I was having that, that I couldn't make sense of. So then I thought I was mentally weak because I was experiencing these difficult things. You know, I mean, Tim Henman didn't know that, but probably at that time I was going through some real challenges and confidence and a, a, a lad from the Northeast living away from home, missing home, you know, in this industry, starting to get into this industry where I didn't always feel I fitted, you know, all of these bits that, but the, the, the last bit to finish off that story, Henry is I'm so lucky. I had that experience and that difficulty is as well because that's what's built the resilience in me and enabled me to, to go on and do what I do now, you know? So there, there is the element now that we give too much support and almost stop, stop the individuals experiencing the difficult, difficult things because which, which maybe, maybe prevents people from developing in future as well. I think that's why Sir Alex Ferguson is the greatest manager I've, I've covered because he had those people skills. Obviously, sports psychologists are so important with the qualifications that, that they have and the understanding and the sort of the emotional empathy. But also with managers now, they've got so much on their plate. Dealing with media for an hour after ma a match, dealing with sponsors, managing up, dealing with board members, a broad range of players from different countries, different characters. It's, it's more and more demanding. Whereas Sir Alex Ferguson, when he was manager, his people skills yeah. and the, one of his many, many strengths, incredible memory. So if a, a, a kid was coming through the academy at, at Carrington at Manchester United and Ferguson would know about them, he said, how's your school work going? He would talk to their parents, talk to them by their names. If they had siblings there who were doing their homework by the side of the pitch or in the canteen or whatever, Ferguson would, would know their names. He was just unbelievable. He's probably one of the most inspiring two or three people I've met in life. And you can see why Harvard, the business school there, wants him to talk about leadership. Yeah, yeah. But it was just, whenever I talk to former Manchester United players, Manchester United players of his era, the all, same question I always ask him, what's his team talk like? And the team talk for him, and I'm sure you do it with, with people at your academy, often wasn't very much about the sort of the battle, the sporting battle ahead, which was going to come when the referee blew his whistle or the buzzer sounded and they had to walk out at Old Trafford or wherever. It was all about moments in their life, in their journey that have got Paul Scholes, who had asthma as a kid, um, one or two players who might come from sort of broken homes, Cantona coming from overseas, the whole world, the French establishment against him, Crystal Palace fans against him. Mm -hmm. And he would just bring elements out of them. And I would have loved, you know, as a journalist, you get a ringside seat, but you're not in the ring. And I would have, and that's why it's fascinating to hear, say, Michael Carrick from your neck of the woods, northeast of England, 
great hotbed of footballing talent. And just, he would say, well, Ferguson would occasionally talk about swans, sorry, geese flying overhead. And he said, they're a team. You had the one at the front and then you had the rest behind. And then one would go to the front. And it's all about working as clockwork, working as a team. He would talk about his own background, the shipyards of Glasgow. And it would come back to sort of certain themes, which I'm sure you do with, with people who come to your academy. Camaraderie, that teamwork, that essence of being a sort of a sporting union, because Ferguson was obviously a huge union man sort of growing up, talking about that. And then also the sort of pride in what you do and in your work and in your family, that when you go out there, you're not simply representing yourself. You are representing a team, a club, your family, you know, all of those who have helped you on this, this journey. And I just think that one reason I feel very privileged to do my job is that sport doesn't just teach about sport. It teaches about life. And if you listen to Ferguson, and there are many episodes you know I've, I've had the hairdryer treatment from Ferguson I've also been privileged to to sit in his office and just listen to him and few people speak as beautifully as Ferguson and I interview I've interviewed most people in in football not Messi or Ronaldo but but pretty much everyone you Pelé and I've been Bobby Charlton and, and so many great people Ferguson talks so beautifully you know, his English is just is just exemplary. But just to listen to him, you come out of it, A, feeling enthused, and B, feeling I've learned something about life. I've learned something about dealing with adversity. I mean, Ferguson, you know, in those darkest hours, maybe like after Benfica or when he was being questioned early on in Man his Manchester United career, that remarkable resilience. So, I, again, I think, yeah, sport, you know, Federer, Williams, you think particularly Serena Williams, what she went through to get to where she did. The uh, I'm sure there was, you would know better, I'm sure there was racism. I saw, I'm sure there was an element of classism about how sort of she stepped up and to break through those ceilings to be such a role model is just a lesson for life as well as sport. I, t I told you no Canton or no Schmeichel. So you've gone and brought Brody Ferguson in that. You, you're determined. You're determined to get me feeling, feeling, bringing back those memories. I've, I've got a list here. I'm going through them. Okay, absolutely. <laughs> but, but, I haven't involved in the class of 92 yet. <laughs> in terms of, in terms of, in terms of what you're saying, it, it, and I, and I love it. And it, 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 it comes back to connection for me. And, I, and a quick question I want to ask you actually. So, you know, we talk, taking that sports psychology bit as well. And that's, that's been my theory on it, that in order to help someone's mind, you have to be connected to them, which, which, which I guess traditionally it was go and see the sports psychologist. You're struggling mentally. That's not a, that's not a basis to, 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 to receive help. You know, it's not just a case of go and take, you know, listen to this and then everything's going to be okay. It's a, it's a process. And what you're saying about Ferguson there, he very blatantly had such a strong relationship and was connected deeper than just even the person, you know, into their families. So now you can actually start to change what's happening up above, you know, and you can help with perspective and you can help with all of these skills. Is that where the job of being the national coach is so much more difficult? Because you're saying Alex Ferguson, but he, he's he's with these players almost 24-7. 
you know, and the, the, the national coaches are receiving players, almost like rugby balling players that don't want to go, especially during the bloody Nations Cup, which even, you know, I can see from a mile off, that was the most ridiculous thing ever straight after the season finished. How does the national coach, so let's take, make this about England, which is what where, where our passion lies. How can Gareth Southgate create that same level and deepness of relationship and connection with these players to have the impact on them from a mental side as somebody like an Alex Ferguson's been able to over the years? I mean, Southgate and Ferguson, obviously completely different characters, completely different careers. But I think where they do have a, a connection is the emotional empathy that Southgate has. He's got brilliant people skills. I think maybe going back to 96, I'm trying not to mention any Manchester United players in this, but going back to uh, 96 when Gary Neville was in the team, uh, the England team, obviously Southgate missed that penalty. And I mean, when he got the England job, I mean, he basically said that any stick the media give him, nothing will compare to having sort of 4,000 abusive letters for when he, he missed the penalty at Euro 96, uh, including from someone who was in jail, who said when Southgate missed his penalty, he ran out of his pub and attacked every German car he could because England lost to Germany on penalties again. So I think once you've been through the eye of the storm like that, you've got an experience and you can relate to players who may be getting sort of critical headlines. I just think Southgate's just a genuinely likeable individual. And if you look at the sort of, he's changed the culture. I mean, you, you made that point about players maybe not so keen to report for duty. They have been under Southgate. He's changed that mentality. He was also very clever. He did so certain sort of technical things to, to, to change it. He went over to the Super Bowl and had a look at how they do the media week or the media day leading up to the Super Bowl and how every player comes out and talks. And he did similar before the World Cup in Russia because there'd been a disconnect between the players and the media and most significantly and damaging a disconnect between the players and the fans. There was a famous game in Malta at halftime and the fans turned their back on the team and went back into to Valletta it picked up their flags and it was just a it was an arrow to the heart of the England players we don't respect you anymore message from the players so he wanted to rebuild that because Southgate having seen how the shirt weighs heavily how all the years have hurt is just you know it's just wired into the minds of these young England players and how it inhibits them from expressing themselves as they do for their clubs so he changed all that. So he had a sort of Super Bowl style event at um, St. George's Park um, and all the players came out and talked. And just by chance, it was a day after Raheem Sterling had been pilloried in the paper for his gun to two. And Raheem sat there, he's a very calm, sanguine individual. He sat there and explained the journey that he'd been on, the fact that his father had been shot uh, when he was in Jamaica as a two-year-old. And he just talked about what the gun to two meant for him. It wasn't a celebration of violence. It was just a reminder of his own journey and a connection with his, his father. And that rebuilt the relationship with the, the press. Carl, I remember listening to Carl Walker and I said, you're going into a World Cup. What was it like? watching a World Cup growing up in uh, in Sheffield. And he said, well, I lived on this housing estate and we didn't have a television, but our next door neighbour did on the sort of sixth, seventh floor of their tower block. And I went into there and he had, you know, this was just, just stunned me when he said this. He said, um, our television, our neighbour's television, because they didn't have one, was uh, you had to put 50p coins in 
to, it was like a meter on the television to get it going. And he was just explaining, he said that was completely normal. And, you know, we, I think it was 2002 World Cup, he might've been watching and he said, well, Michael Owen scored. And then we were ferociously putting 50p pieces in just to see if England could see off Brazil. And so just to get that connection and just to remind that it's very clever of Southgate to remind the media, remind the fans that this is flesh and blood they're talking about. This is not just sort of egos and gated communities and hundred grand a week or whatever, that they're people there. And that that changed and they're a very likable bunch. There's that slight sort of all black element to them, you said you bring a, a, a psychologist from uh, from New Zealand over. They're brilliant at that. That understanding that you know you walk in the footsteps of others. That the, the sweep the sheds. You leave the dressing room tidy. Then when you got in, the respect after after an interview, you put your seat back under the under the table, and the good citizens. And that is why you know there are few individuals in the England squad who you won't say were were, were good people. So Southgate's changed all that. He's almost like a sort of psychologist, the way he's worked with it. Now, there are one or two tactical things we'd like Southgate to do and to, you know, respond in the in the second half when Mancini's flooding midfield in the Euro final. But he's definitely changed the mood around the camp. Obviously, everything will be defined by how far he gets in the World Cup in Qatar. But yeah, as a as an individual, he is a he's a good man. Because it's a sadness of modern life, and you probably see it with some of your younger academy players, that a lot of kids come from broken homes. And there are a lot of, one thing with, with England, a lot of the players have been on journeys, particularly early in their life, with very strong mothers, without necessarily a father figure. So that Ferguson type, that Southgate type, becomes even more important as a mentor, as I mean, I remember just finally on this, I can remember when Arsene Wenger left Arsenal and for the preceding three, four years, I'd been critical of him as saying he's outstaying his welcome. And then when he finally did go, obviously they were all the emotional tributes. And I got one of my um, son's friends, who's about 22, 23. He, he just said to me, he said, Henry, you don't understand that Arsene Wenger is more than a football manager to my generation. My father left, excuse me, my father left when um, when I was very young and the only consistent, stable male role model I've ever had in my life has been Arsene Wenger. So again, it's just that reminder of the power of the manager, the power of the individual and the importance of people skills, which Wenger clearly had and Southgate has and Ferguson was just the exemplar of it all. And, and on that, Henry, it, we're t- talking about connection and connection with fans, connection with the media. Where do you sit in terms of, and, and I, I, I guess I'll, I'll say where I sit on this and be great to hear your view. Podcasts have helped, are helping to change that a little bit because I guess before you, you, you would get a snippet. You'd maybe get a snippet and, you know, players of all sports, you know, athletes out there, that you, they're not going to get into too much. You know, famously, Andy Murray, Andy Murray said, you know, tongue-in-cheek, he said, um, who who do you want to win at the Euros? He said, you know, anyone that plays England, you know? And, you know what, and, you know what? I, I, I have to say, I, I respected him even more for that. I mean, mainly because I'd lived in Scotland for uh, four years. But I, could, but I, I could, honestly, I would have respected him less if he said, oh, of course I want England to do well. He but, is but, Scottish. No, well, he is. But if we take the context, that, that would be one example. I, I think what I, I'm actually listening, I'm in the middle of listening to an Alex Scott, Alex Scott oh, yeah. podcast. 
you know. Which yeah, she's got a fantastic book out, by the way. Her, yeah, book's, her book's brilliant. I mean, I mean, I, I'm listening to the podcast, but it, 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 you can tell it's going to be. But it's getting that extra context that that then, and we get this all the time with 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 this podcast. You know, young British players, whoever it might be, that comes on that then the fans are more connected. They understand their story. They, they, they have a bit more empathy back, you know, and that, that, that relationship then goes, goes two ways. Whereas maybe previously it was an excerpt from a conversation that would go into, and obviously you're, you've been in the world of print for, for many, many years. How, how do you feel the podcast world? Is it, is it a help, a hindrance to, to what you do and what's your, what's your, thoughts on podcasts in general i i always laugh when people say you're a print journalist i mean i've got a you know i've, I've got a few people who follow me on social media i do television radio i've written scripts for football films i've written you know journalism is just a message and whether it's in you know 45 50 words in a misspelled tweet which i'm quite good at uh, or whether it's, you know, a 120,000 word book. I've written books on, on England, but it's all about getting the message over there. Yeah. So I think podcasts have been fantastic. I think, you know, I, I always makes me laugh when people say, oh, social media will be the, the death of mainstream media. In fact, what social media has done is shone a light on basically people whose opinions you can trust. Removing myself from the frame because I, I make mistakes on, on Twitter. But there are quite a few of my colleagues, not simply at the Times, but at other, you know, the Telegraph, at the Mail, who when they tweet something, the podcasts, the fans forums, the all the fan sites just take it. So, right, he's written that, she's written that. It's it's gospel, and then they go and have all their phone ins and, and react to it. So, ironically, social media has actually shown basically that yeah. you, know, you hope the majority of sports journalists, football journalists, you can trust what they say because we have to research, because we have to stand things up with contacts, because we're fairly aware of uh, libel laws, contempt, and what you can and can't say legally. So, um, so yes, that. But what has also been very good, coming back to football, this generation of players, early 20s, they're quite used now to, and I see it with my own kids, of actually sort of putting their lives out in public, so to social media. Not simply, I put the kettle on, I had a boring day, but I'm going through issues with mental health and talking about that because they know that it will help other people out there. And so I find actually this is a very expressive generation. So if I go and interview, excuse me, um, I'm trying not to mention any Manchester United players. So, for example, if I go and interview Marcus Rashford, you know, a Manchester United player, um, Give me a Shearer story. Yeah, give me a Shearer story. Well, I tell you what, Shearer, Shearer is well. I, I chased Shearer around a golf course once because I was doing a book on, there's a chapter in a book on penalties. And you know how, you know, Alan's like, he does amazing work for the Sir Bobby Robson Foundation. And there was a Bobby Robson Foundation event. In fact, it's um, a cliff, your old uh, training ground at yeah. Middlesbrough, which has got a lovely golf course next to it. So I got in a buggy and then sort of chased chased him around. He was absolutely brilliant on the art of uh, of penalty taking. So there's your Shearer story. And I won't mention he could have gone to Manchester United. Um, can't remember what I was saying. Yeah, it's a very expressive generation because they've got you know they want. I got something wrong factually in a tweet about Wayne Rooney, and he replied. In fact, this was a few years back, and he replied and said, "This is the reason for it." 
Um, and I think that's good. If I get something wrong, whether it's in print, whether it's something I said on the radio, television, your famous podcast, I want to be called out about it because that's right, because it shows there is a relationship, a connection there. And also, you know, I shouldn't be getting things wrong. I'm going to I'm going to move gears slightly. And I'm going to go to a quick quiz. Oh, um, dear. Oh, dear. Now, it, it's an opinion. Oh. It's an opinion quiz. So you don't you, there's no wrong answers, but it, it, it's going to lead me into the next topic. And and, and I think, you know, the, my first question on it, Henry, is, you know, if you think of the the top 10 most famous sports people over the last 15 years, throw some names out. What comes to your mind? Which names? Skulls. Gary Neville, Phil Neville, Nicky Butt, Eric Cantona, uh, Gary Pallister. Uh, how many? Just was it just Manchester United players he wanted? Um, I will if I can. What of all sports? All sports, sports people in I would, all sports. I would start with the, the greatest sports individual this great great country has ever seen. Uh, Sir Bobby Charlton for club and for country, 66, the most important moment. Bobby Moore, who I have the privilege to meet again, top sports people, Grace. Um, Leah Williamson, the Lioness's captain, I would definitely have the, uh, her in there because she's just a fantastic ambassador. She's involved in a couple of orphanages as well as being a fantastic leader, great interviewee, smiling person, you know, you just think, wow, she's an inspiration for, for a generation. Uh, definitely Alex Ferguson can mention him. Um, Paul Scholes, I mean, just no one hit a, a, a ball more truly. And then probably I'll finish with Sir Kenny Douglas. I think for his leadership of a, of a grieving club, grieving community, grieving city during Hillsborough was just, was just extraordinary and really basically exhausted him and he had to walk away from Liverpool. I can remember when I wrote, I've written two books with him. He always says one more, he gets to keep me. But the, the first book I did with him was the first time he'd really spoken about what happened at Hillsborough and just the sort of pressure it put on him. And again, Kenny being Kenny, he would try to sort of deflect it away and just say, you know, the family's the most important things. The, you know, the 96, now 97 um, Liverpool fans who tragically passed away. Um, you know, he, he would always be focused on them. And Marina, his wife, walked through the room where we were talking and said, Kenny, you really have to open up about this because we have so many letters from the families who just said, thank you for standing by us when no one else did, when the, the Westminster establishment, when other, you know, other authorities in, in society, the state, um, had actually basically turned against the, the Liverpool fans disgracefully and since proven erroneously. So, yeah, he's a remarkable, remarkable individual, as well as a player that I, I was a Liverpool fan growing up, but as I admired him as a player with that hunger, with that team-mindedness, with that eye for a goal, eye for a pass, just tactically brilliant, won the, the title at um, with with two clubs. And when when I finished the book, the publisher said, right, we want a big name to do the forward. And Kenny immediately said, Alec, Alex Ferguson will do it. And I said, well, there's a chapter in the book saying why you two didn't really get on. He said, no, no, Alex is good as gold ring up. So this is 
sorry to come back to Manchester United again, but I rang um, Ferguson up at Manchester United's old training ground, the Cliff, and his secretary answered and he said, the manager will talk to you at seven o'clock tomorrow morning. Basically, don't be late. Uh, and it was it was on the phone. I rang him at seven o'clock. He said, hey, come on. Um, said, I've got training. I was getting seven o'clock in the morning. You know, I can't believe any of your players will be out. You know, probably one or two of them might still be coming in. So um, he said, right, three questions. So I said, what was Kenny like as a player? And he spoke beautifully, as Ferguson always does, about, you know, what a great player. I worshipped Dennis Law, but Kenny was even better. 102 caps, legend for Scotland, Celtic, Liverpool. I said, what was he like as a manager? He won the title with two clubs. Obviously, a legend. He said, come on, what's your, what's your third question? I've got training. I said, well, what's he like as a, as a person? Because Ferguson has got a huge array of friends, whether it's within football, obviously family connections, racing, whatever. And I said, well, Kenny just seems to have, he said to me, he said, well, you know, what do you think of Kenny as a person? And I said, well, he seems to have an incredibly tight support network around him in terms of Marina, the kids, Alan Hansen. But it's about, you know, he's got sort of three or four really close friends. And Ferguson went, you only need four people to carry a coffin and put the phone down. And that was, that was just sort of, I mean, classic Ferguson. So again, you know, whether it's books, whether it's interviews, to actually have had this opportunity to interview these great and, and current great players as well and managers is a, is a great privilege. Your answer says so much and, and, and takes me to the next bit, Henry, because we live in our world. You know, we live in our world. I, I, my question was the most famous sports people in the world you oh wow but no but no but let's just if if you just bear with me a second naturally you went to football completely understandably completely understandably you know some of the ones that would jump to my head would go I'd probably go to tennis you know your Federer's your Nadal's Serena Williams then Tiger Woods Messi Ronaldo however one thing we've both done is we've mentioned one woman you know, you you mentioned Leah Williamson. I I I I mentioned Serena Williams. You know, and 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 I think this is the reality of of the sports industry, the sports world. You know that 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 women are fighting. They're 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 fighting to get their their names out there, their faces out there, that the respect that they absolutely deserve. Now, as someone who is as frontline as yourself in more football than anything else you know how how real is the problem you know and we're not i'm talking about the ecosystem not just not just the athletes but it might be the journalists it might be the coaches it might be you know everyone that's surrounding you know we 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 every now and then in a big major event happens and we'll get onto the lionesses in a minute it then shines a light, it feels, for a, a short period of time, and then it all kind of falls back away again, um, and, and we're, we're back to where we almost were. So from, from your perspective, how big a problem is it, equality within sport? I think it's improving. I think in, in football, I think the media certainly has been far more sportive. I'm probably writing about women's football on and off for, for 30 years. And you get to know people like Hope Powell and what she's done for the game. You get to know people like Emma Hayes and what a remarkable coach she is for, for Chelsea. But just these players, I mean, the, the, you know, it's 
they're a really good. I mean, you, know, you mentioned Alex Scott earlier. I mean, her generation of players, what they had to go through starting out. I mean, just a small little snapshot of this. It was, I think it was about so 20 years ago. There was a charity game. I had to get a media team up. And uh, one of our players was um, Amy Lawrence, who was then at the Guardian Observer, now at the Athletic. And we were waiting in the tunnel. At, we got to use Wembley. That's right. We were playing an FA. 11 and the chief executive of the fa walked through the tunnel and said well she can't play and i said what do you mean she can't play i'm the captain i've picked her and she said well she can't play and i said well she's playing because she's our best player um and um they we actually had a stand to with the fa with the governing bodies of the game who should be promoting grassroots football football at any level and anyway we played and i think she she scored um, but that was just a sort of snapshot of the sort of, you know, the male dominated element of sport. I think it's definitely changing. And I think social media helps because the players have accounts, they can spread the word. There's a, I think it's maybe it's a societal thing as well. As you know, sport is, is a meritocracy. But this is, this is one of the elements. I mean, I get gone into football journalism because I wanted to, because of, you know, volleys and free kicks. Whereas now the job is, I write a lot about racism. I write about Islamophobia. We've got a World Cup coming up in Qatar. So I write about, you know, human rights, migrant workers, how they're being treated, misogyny. So, yeah, and I think I wouldn't necessarily, maybe it is a slightly more enlightened media generation. Maybe it's the, the social, the societal landscape has changed. Um, maybe I think also sponsors and clubs are realizing that actually you can get, what was it, 50 odd thousand went to the North London Derby, the, the women's North London Derby. Yeah, 47 and a half, I think. Yeah. Well, there you go. And I think they sold 52,000 as well. So I think, I just think that, that show, that is showing the sponsors, that's showing the clubs that there's money to be made. And broadcast as well. Broadcast would be fantastic the way they've come in and back. Also, we're fortunate that this collection of lionesses. I, I went for a coffee the other day with Alessio Russo, who did that amazing backhill goal against Sweden in the World Cup. So finished with four goals. Manchester, sorry, Manchester United player. Um, she was. Uh, so I went for a coffee with her in Wilmslow, just south of Manchester. She turned up on her own. We had a coffee. We had a chat. I actually went through. I'd, I'd got some clips on an iPad and went through some of her goals and got me uh, got her to talk me through them. She was eloquent. She'd been obviously over to American University, North Carolina. This is a very expressive, socially aware, unbelievably talented and confident generation. And I think that's fantastic. But then you look over to the States and you look over to, you know, the scandal about abuse that sort of um, just sort of confirmed by the official report. And again, it's a reminder of the, you know, the journey still to go. And and where does it go next? Because even just having a little look before before this chat, it was, you know, you're looking at really 1,000, 2,000 ticket sales last year. The average is, I think, up to about 9,000 now for the WSL this year. So, so the Lioness is winning the Euros has had an impact without a question. But I, I go to, a, again, a comment that I saw on social media the other day, Coco Goff, the young young tennis player, and she she said, and there was a picture of her alongside Serena Williams, and she said, I saw somebody who looked like me dominating the game, so I thought I could do it also. 
you know, and it is that it's, you know, if you can see it, you can be it, you know, and, you know, I take, I've got two daughters, you know, it's terrible in Spain, honestly, like it, it just, if you're a girl in Spain, you can dance, you can play tennis, you can maybe play golf, but you can almost forget football. You what know, about Barcelona? And, Barcelona hold the world record. Well, tennis. yeah, and 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 I, and I would say maybe in some of the bigger cities, you know, where we are, it's it's a little bit more backwards. But but it's but when I had the when we had the Euros on, and, and to see my daughter saying England are playing Sweden at this time on the on the on the Thursday night, the excitement that that they had and they showed, and if we can get that more into the mainstream. There's absolutely no reason why it won't change because if I, Henry, pull it into tennis, and I guess my next question, which I'm not really asking, but uh, to go along the lines, if I, if if we think of over the last ten or fifteen years, the 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 biggest names in in female sports, you probably are naming six or seven out of ten tennis players. You know, you might name. I mean, you you yourself will be a little bit more mind onto onto the women's footballers but from Serena Venus Maria Sharapova you know you you might jump into to to the the odd golfer the odd athlete but in tennis it's something we want to do better but it's something that definitely is being done i would say better in tennis than any other sport and if we talk about the tv rights we talk about the prize money there's a quality coming in now across all of the grand slams so so how how do we build on this further how do we get it more into the eyes of these young girls seeing people that are like them doing doing what they potentially could be doing as well. And I know you're a big advocate of this. I know you're someone that's really supported this over the years, Henry. And I thank you for that. But how do we how do we push it out and make it even more mainstream? The, the women's teams all play their um, club fixtures at uh, the men's ground, what is considered the men's ground, but actually should be completely shared. We saw it with the North London derbies. You said 47,000 people there. Commercially, it makes sense. Morally, I think it it should be there as well. If you can train on adjacent training pitches, why not have the stadium as well? You've got these fantastic stadiums. Why should they just be used for corporate events for the rest of the week? Why don't we have the women's team playing there as well? So I would like to see that. I would like to see Manchester United play at their, their women's team. And Manchester United were a little bit slow to, uh, to, to get going. But why shouldn't they have games at Old Trafford? Also, you know what the English people are like? We love an event. We love our sport. And I've noticed this particularly post-COVID, this desire to get to grounds early, having missed that visceral, emotional, social connection with people during, obviously, lockdown and the games behind closed doors. And I'm seeing it particularly after matches. I would normally leave an hour after matches where most of the ground, so most of the sort of the apron, the area around the ground, most of the people would have gone home. People are staying longer now at matches. So they, they, they miss that. So there is this desire. And it's almost like COVID has sort of, just sort of reminded us that the, the secular cathedrals of life now are football grounds and people miss them. So if that is the case, Open it up more. Have all the, the you know, the, the the women's games. Obviously, some of the bigger women's games are being held at the men's ground. But it shouldn't just be the men's ground. It should be for both teams. And you know what? If you say 
you know, well, however much it is, a five quid for a ticket, you're going to go, you're going to see football, you're going to see good role models. My only real issue with the Lionesses is that I don't think it reflects the diversity of this country. It's quite a white team. I can remember the first game of the Euros. White blonde. Yeah. I mean, I'm okay. just I'm looking at it, and which is slightly strange, because if you think of the, uh, the players um, in previous generations, Alex Scott, you mentioned, you know, it was more reflective of, of society. So I think... But again, that is a reflection. I've talked to uh, some of the women's players, the Lionesses, about this. And they say, well, it's about opportunity. Football shouldn't be a middle-class sport. It should be a, a sport for all. It should be investing in the inner cities. You know, So this is a societal issue as well as a, a, a women's football issue. And it is ridiculous that girls at schools, particularly schools in the inner cities, are not having the access to sport, to facilities, to proper coaching. So, look, you say there are issues in Spain. We've got issues over here, but there's definitely a will to change here, but we just need more help from Whitehall. And, and what about, so if I, if I again bring this back into tennis, the biggest advocate, in my opinion, or the biggest influence over the last few years on equality in tennis has not been the women speaking out. Because it's too easy sometimes, you know, if the women tennis players are speaking out, oh, bloody women, bloody whinging again. You know, it's it's actually been and been led by Andy Murray, you know, and Andy's been a massive, massive advocate of of equality. He's, he's on his social media, in interviews, just in subtleties as well, you know. So you might, we'll get it in tennis. And I think football, in my opinion, is a long way away from this. But, you know, someone would say uh, the greatest ever uh, ever tennis player or the tennis player that's won the most ever Grand Slams is Rafael Nadal. And then Andy Murray would tweet underneath that and say, well, actually, Serena Williams has won 23. Margaret Court's won 24. You know, it's the subtle, it's the subtleties. There's, there's, there's been lots and lots of that. And, and I think Andy Murray's legend of the game will actually go down more for his influence and, and expression on promotion of, of equality within tennis than it will for the Grand Slams and the gold medals that he's won. Who who's taking that role? You know, is Pep Pep Guardiola? Is you know, is Cristiano Ronaldo? You know, who who which which superstar is taking that role in the promotion of equality within football? Because I'm a big follower of social media of football. I follow football more than I follow tennis. I don't hear it. Oh, I think the the, the men's. England men's team, absolutely vocal in their backing of the Lionesses. And also they would turn up at matches. They, they, they go and support. I mean, remember, you know, we are, they're probably just still slightly too young to have um, kids, daughters. Well, actually, you know, some of them probably do. Some of the older players have got um, daughters who, who are wanting to, to play. I think there is a lot of support from, I mean, tennis is, I agree. Tennis is is ahead. Um, I've never met uh, Jamie or Andy Murray. They have huge admiration for them as sportsmen, also individuals. They came come over as good guys, and you know, with good senses of uh, good senses of humour and sort of life in perspective. But I have had lunch with Judy Murray, their amazing mum, and I would march into battle with her on yeah. on any issue because she's a fantastic leader, very charismatic. Um, so yeah, I think there are. Yeah, it's it's slightly different in a in a in a team game, 
Well, I do think the, again, coming back to social media, the men's players were all backing the Lionesses, even though they knew that they would get a bit of, well, the women have gone and won a trophy. You haven't won anything from 66. I think it's a little bit unfair to sort of com- compare the two. Let's celebrate and cherish, particularly the Lionesses, with, with what they achieved. Don't use the Lionesses as a stick to beat the underachieving men's team with. No. But I do think they are... You know, they, they absolutely are. I mean, I've been to games with uh, with my daughter. And, you know, one of the things about going to women's football, and it hasn't got the sort of the edge in the intensity and that sort of slight toxicity in the, um, you know, as in the, in the men's game, whether it's in the air or on the pitch. But actually, if you want to go with your family, if you want to go and see a bunch of role models, if you don't want to see diving, cheating, having a go at the ref, um, then you're going to go to a women's game. So in a way, it's sort of happening organically. But I think it does come back to the the clubs have got to show the women the respect by having the games at Old Trafford, at Emirates, at Etihad. You know, because I think there's a field of dreams element. I think that more and more will turn up and you will fill out and it you will be able to pay for the stewards and you will be, and you commercially it it will be good you know the lioness's strip sells well but just coming back to the, an earlier point you made about women's football being slightly in the uh, in in the shadow that one of the most important impressive iconic role model teams in any sport men or women's over the last 10 15 years has been the US women's national yeah. team. They've stood up to Trump. They've stood out on the pitch, taken responsibility, whether it's Hope Solo in goal, whether it's Megan Rapinoe attack, so many individuals there. I think they will, if you're thinking of five, 10 of the greatest footballing teams of all time, you would have that American women's team in it. You would, not many would. And that's that's where I think we've got to get to, I think, Henry. I think I agree, I agree with you. I think it's changing. I do think I it's maybe so. it's because I'm in a more sort of um, football and women's football-centric country. And, you know, I'm proud of that. But also the football, the football's good. You know, people say, oh, well, they would struggle against Manchester United, your favourites, under-16 men's team. That's not the point. Just go that's and not enjoy relevant. It. That's not relevant. No, not relevant. Just no. go and enjoy it for, for you know for, for what it is. So yeah, I think um, steps are being made. But look, we've also got to make steps in you know there's a glass ceiling still in this country for black coaches. You know we've got we've got many issues to, uh, to 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 get through this. I mean, I cover England. England will be the first major team to walk off a pitch men's team uh, for racist abuse. And it will happen within the next two years, and it will be on the front of Time magazine of a black and white England player saying, enough is enough. And we are not going to have bananas thrown enough. We're not going to have our substitutes racially abused when they're warming up for doing their, their work. You wouldn't allow that in a place of work, in an office, factory floor, whatever. It's enough is enough. We've got to kick it out. So look, football have got many issues, but I would say that the march towards towards improvement towards principles i think is 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 happening good but the, the i i really hope so henry and i think when we get to the point where somebody says name the five greatest footballers of all time or the five greatest teams of all time and somebody naturally 
names a female player or female team and, and not just somebody but that's that's the general like I do believe that's in tennis if somebody said name the five greatest tennis players you would have someone say Serena Williams Martina Navratilova as an example without thinking about it that's when it that's when we're truly at the point we want to be at you know whereas I think I think right now that question's probably to get the answer pulled out that you want from the general public name the greatest ever female footballer or great name the greatest ever if you say name the greatest ever footballer I think people's minds still go to the male will go to five males and I think that's where we're going to get to but one question as a Newcastle fan bloody Man United Man United Man United let's bring it back to the 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 real stuff here Henry you know and uh, you know you've written lots of articles and you know we we appreciate that and you know on on the new Saudi owners you know at, at Newcastle and you know you your views have seemed to be quite sympathetic towards the position of the club's supporters you know and I think there's there's obviously different layers of where of where we're looking at that but now that Newcastle as an example are pushing the ladies team, you know, and that's going to come under the same ownership. You know, they're looking to grow that, you know, what are your views on how the game is going to now be promoted by such owners? Because potentially an ownership like Newcastle is something that could give it the finance that takes it to a a new level, you know, but is that, is that a contradiction that's too much to accept? Can the Newcastle United women's team go and play in Saudi? I think these are the sort of the questions. Maybe it's, you know, there's an element of enlightenment which will be encouraged in Saudi with uh, the sort of the campaigning of journalists, with the comments that are being made about sports washing. But I just think there's a, there's a, there's a balance here. I mean, first, Newcastle United doesn't belong to me. It doesn't actually belong to the Saudis. It belongs to you. It belongs to the kids kicking the ball around in the streets in, in Gateshead and Wall's End emotionally, financially might belong to, 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 the, to the Saudis and to Amanda Staveley. But I think emotionally it belongs to you. Without you, it's just a large building in the middle of town with a nice front lawn. So, you know, the fans are the most important thing. The fans, when they effectively, I always call it a liberation from the Mike Ashley era. I think you actually, you know, you completely deserve that. This whole, I was getting messages on social media, you know, is it can stage yet? <laughs> which I think you'll understand the whole can <laughs> thing, hashtag cans, which would mean you get the cans out of the fridge and celebrate because it's, uh, because Mike Ashley's gone. So I think to, to write about and understand the situation properly, you have to walk the streets of Newcastle and talk to people and understand that this was a regime that bled the club, certainly emotionally, um, under, uh, under Mike Ashley, and hope has restored the fact that you can dream again, not necessarily of winning the league in the next couple of years, but having a decent cup run. And, and so that is good. But I think that also has, to, and I love going to Newcastle United. It's one of the great walks up from Central Station through those little ginnels, the fans all falling out of pubs, so excited, snow on the ground, and they've still just got their black and white shirts on and shorts, and you're going, Don't, does anyone sell coats up here or whatever? Say no, because we want to show that, you know, the black and white shirt is our second skin. And um, and then you sort of you go into the ground, you go past the, the Shearer statue, the you know the Bobby Robson statue. It is a special place, and that's it. You go to games there. 
that's just extraordinary moment when they play local hero and you just this huge noise it's one of the biggest roars in sport let alone simply in football and you just get the sense of this is this is a club newcastle united again um, so I think that is fantastic. It's great to see, you know, the appointments you've made, sensible appointments about evolution. Eddie Howe, Darren Eels, the chief executive, very good signing from, from Atlanta. Uh, and then Dan Ashworth will make sure you bring, you target good young players, evolution academy, obviously developing the women's side as well, as you say. Got a fantastic foundation as well, do amazing work in the, in the community. But, but you know, I can write about all that and I can write about an interview Callum Wilson and write about his goals and I can write about Sam Maximum cutting in off a flank and scoring these things. But I will also mention in there that, you know, we have to take into account there is an element of sports washing. There is an element of... And it's also, it's important to, to continue the debate about sports washing and because they were considered, according to American authorities... Uh, implicit in the murder of a journalist, Kamal Khashoggi, Jamal Khashoggi. So, you know, it's important to, 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 to weave all these things into the story, but I wouldn't, yeah, but also it's, look, it's a sporting story, but again, it's a, it's a life story, it's a political story, and all those things have to be mentioned. But I'm not going to go and pour cold water on, I mean, I live near Peterborough, I get on the station, you know, and there'll be 30 Newcastle fans just in their shirts, snow on the ground, cans in their hand, you know, just singing because of their joy. I'm not going to, I'm not going to shred their joy. Just, you know, I just might sort of mention in the second paragraph about sports washing, but it's, but it is extraordinary what they're doing. And, you know, the investment that's being put in has actually been fairly sensible so far. And despite the sort of, you know, the sudden myth of Newcastle fans, uh, yeah, you actually, I think, a fairly balanced bunch. You just want a team that plays with pride in the shirt. You want that occasional moment of Philippe Albert running through and chipping Peter Schmeichel. There you go. That's a happy memory of Manchester United. You want to have the, the video or the tape or now probably the DVD or whatever, the stream of, what did you call it? Hawaii 5-0 when you yeah. beat... Oh, we all had it. We all had yeah. it. <laughs> it's probably on VHS, it's so old, but it's on Betamax. But it's, oh, it's, on my, it's on my favourites now. On the, you know, I can go YouTube straight away, you know. You yeah, can, yeah. You that was an amazing off. day. And I walked out of that and it was a Sunday afternoon game. And, you know, and it was just brilliant. But look, Newcastle fans are amazing. I lost a bet with some Newcastle fans on social media and my forfeit was I had to swim the tide. I said, well, I'll do it for Bobby Robson's foundation. And I, I, I went up there, I'd organise it. The Port of Tyne Authority said, you know, because it's all being played out on social media, said, by the way, you know, you've got to do this properly. You need a guide. So I rang up a local swimming guide uh, who was very disappointed when I said I was swimming at widthways. I wasn't swimming the time lengthways. He said, yeah, no, I'll help you over. We'll do it by the time bridge. And then I was getting um, Newcastle fans saying, oh, by the way, uh, don't wear a grey um, swimsuit because it's the seal mating season and I don't know how fast a swimmer you are and then we have marine biology this is social media for you and Newcastle fans for you then had Newcastle United sporting marine biologists coming on said don't be stupid it's not the seal mating season but it is the sea otter mating season so make sure you, you swim fast and then I turned up and there were about 2,000 Geordies wow. on the quayside you know 
possibly hoping to see a sort of, you know, cocky Southern journalist, you know, disappear under the waves. So a couple of them were shouting, watch out for brown fish. I said, what brown fish? They said, well, you'll find out, mate. It's not particularly pleasant. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I, we wasted a few quid. And I managed to get across and uh, don't try this at home. Don't swim at the time. It's, uh, it's not the cleanest. And wow, that's a current in the middle. But, you know, that's the Newcastle fans view. They will turn up to support their club obviously to raise money for Sir Bobby Robson Foundation as well. Um, the amazing work they do in um, combating cancer. But it's it's a unique city. One club cities always have that special atmosphere to them. And if I go to Newcastle United on a non-match day, it's like a match day elsewhere, everyone wandering around in their shirts, buzz around the place. You can hear people talking about Shearer, Sam Maximum, probably Gallagher as well, Supermac. It is uh, it's a city that lives and breathes football. So just to bring it back to sports washing, I'm not going to take the joy out of Geordie's lives. I love listening to you talk about Newcastle like that, Henry. You've got a great, you've got a great way with words. Does it make you homesick? Uh, well, it does. It, it, you know what? And the local hero. I mean, I, I went to American University and... Um, I remember when I first got there, you, you know, you do, you do your four month stints. I mean, here in Spain, it's so easy to get back, but in America, it was a little bit of a longer, longer period. And the nights that I would listen to um, coming home, Newcastle and yeah. local hero. And you'd, you'd have, you would, it, 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 it is a, I mean, home is home for everybody, but it, there's a very, very special feel in that city and, and, and on match days you know you see it yourself the city stops you know I lived in Birmingham for six years you didn't know if there was a match going on you know on, on a Saturday but if 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 there's a match that happens on a Saturday you know the whole city knows and and that's why I, I do tend to think you know what to bring it back to women's football Newcastle could be the pioneers in some way because I, I think it, it it is the sort of city, you know, I've watched, you know, Newcastle Falcons. I remember when they came in and Rob Andrew came in and, you know, everyone got behind that. I go back years. I remember when Ian Botham came to Durham cricket, you know, and I, we were, I remember going to his first match. I was on Sky Sports in the background age 15 or, or whatever it might be, you know, Durham Wasps many, many, many years ago, you know, and, and, and I think, I think we are, a city, not just the city of Newcastle, but the Northeast in general is we, we love our sport. We love being part of a tribe, part of a community. So now that Newcastle United has a, a, a women's football team, I really can see, I'm having a little laugh there going, well, probably 2000 people watching Henry went to swim and there's only 1000 people watching the women play football. <laughs> you know, how do we get St. James's part rocking? But with the Saudis being the ones that are going to back that and potentially bring in the signings of Leah Williams and Beth Mead, I don't know over the years, I'm speculating, but they've certainly got the money to do it. Does that cause a problem for you if they are the start of really, truly building domestic women's football in, in the UK, is, is is does that then get to a point where you go, well, hold on a minute, this is maybe a step too far? No, I think if it's the start of building women's football in Saudi, I think that will be, uh, you know, that's the uh, that's the, the aim, the goal. I just think that I would like to see Newcastle United play their games at um, St. James's Park. You talk about the sort of the, the, the huge passion. I think they would, people would turn up in their numbers. They would. 
they they would. I mean, was it Alan Shearer used to say they would that they'd turn up to watch the uh, St James's Park kit man sort of hanging ten black and white shirts on the line because there yeah. is that huge huge passion. I do a lot of running and. You know, I've done marathons, uh, half marathons all over the country. And my favourite race, and I'm still recovering it from three, four weeks ago, is the Great North Run. Yeah, It's unbelievable. It's amazing. You know, the, what's it, 60,000 people are doing it. And then the Geordie's there. And you know, you know the route that it goes out to the coast. And it goes through to sort of less built up areas. Their Geordie's all the way along. About a mile from the end, there was a Geordie who offered me a pint. And... <laughs> As a journalist, I'm I'm slightly loath to turn down a pint, but I was going, mate, you know, I'm I'm you know, is it an isotonic pint of uh, of Newcastle stat or whatever? Um, so yeah, I staggered down the hill and had a pint later. But it's just, it is a great sporting city. You've listed, you know, so John Hall wanted to do that. He liked the sort of Barcelona approach, and you just had this sort of sporting sporting club of, of different sports. And absolutely, the women get the women playing in uh, in St James's Park. Um, get, you, I don't know how many you would get, but I bet it would sell out, you know, sensibly priced, kids for a quid, family for 20 quid, whatever. Newcastle it's, against Sunderland. New, wow, can you imagine that? And Sunderland ladies are, are fairly decent. So you would get, yeah, absolutely. And then what that does, you know, again, coming back to our central conversation, sport is about sport, but it's about life. And particularly post-pandemic, you see some of these kids who've basically been locked up they haven't had their exercise. What's that done to their physical health, their mental health? Gareth Southgate talks about this concern. There's a bubble coming through sport of a generation which missed two years of training. The golden years, eight to 12, as Dennis Bergkamp always used to call them, the golden age of, of learning about sport and learning about life. And also, you know, we have a slight side issue, but it's a big issue. So we have a slight issue with, big issue with um, obesity in this country. Get more kids playing sport that then alleviates pressure long-term on the NHS. It's not rocket science. Henry, it's a, it's a great place to stop. And I, I, do have, I do have a quick fire round, which you don't get away with. No, no oh. guest does. But before that, I just want to say, I want to say a big thank you. You know, I think, you know, as, as I set out on this mad journey, I guess, of running a podcast, you know, I'm certainly far from a journalist I'm a tennis coach I'm a, an academy director it's been it's been incredible to open up so many conversations and you know in a in a space that I'm very comfortable in tennis and and I've had now a few experiences and opportunities to speak to to people that I've read their work I've watched their work over the years in in a conversation that maybe I'm not approaching with as much confidence as I would speaking about tennis so I've 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 loved it I was you know looking forward to this with anticipation and for the way that you've openly shared with such passion and, and knowledge and insight and uh, apart from talking about Man United too much it's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure so thank you Henry. Well thanks for having me on and aren't we lucky we've got sport whether it's you playing tennis at a good level or me being privileged enough to uh, to, to cover it and particularly football I mean, it's, you know, there are many joys in this world and football sport is, you know, I mean, what's it Carlo Ancelotti always called it? Football is the most important of the least important things. You know, <laughs> there are many issues in yeah, society, yeah. but how yeah. special, how special is sport? Are you ready? Quick fire. Go on then. Hit me with it. Roger or Rafa? Rafa Benitez. Definitely Roger. 
what what year will Newcastle win their next major trophy? Uh, three years time. So whatever that is, 25. We're going to hold you to that, Henry. <laughs> We're going to come after you if that doesn't happen. It will, I, well, I think it may be before. I was thinking, well, I've been too conservative. You, you will win something. It might just be a League Cup to start with, but you will win something within three years. We'll take we'll take a league league cup any day of the week, and I'll be on that next Ryanair flight out of here when it when it happens. Sunderland in the final, I can see it now. <laughs> uh, Premier League or Champions League? Champions League. What's one rule change you would have in football? Uh, whether it's a rule change, I would limit VAR to ninety seconds. If you can't decide whether it's clear and obvious within ninety seconds, then there's no debate. Serena or Venus? Serena. The best ever Premier League footballer, in your opinion? For you, Alan Shearer. Yes. So serve or return? A good serve, a beautiful serve. You know, it's like a penalty in football and it's practiced. And I would say, yeah, a good serve, something special. Replay or penalties? There's so many games now, it has to be penalties. Who's going to be the World Cup winner 2022 Qatar? Argentina. And the Wimbledon winners of 2023? Alan Shearer. Um, <laughs> men's and women's. Men's and women. Hey, this is, this is a show of equality, Henry. Djokovic. Whoever it is, I hope they're worthy successor to Serena because I've never met her. I've just watched her and admired her as a as a as a pioneer I, I see characters like her fighters in football particularly and I see the journeys that they've been on that you know the sort of the racism the obstacles the closed doors they've had and my admiration for their character as well as their sporting skills is immense so you would know better than I would, but someone who is a worthy successor to Serena. And the Champions League winner of 22-23 season? City, finally. Manchester City. It would be nice. Uh, even as, as someone who is a big Newcastle fan, I, I watch back and I, I look at that team and I must admit they, they've grown on me more and more. What does control the controllables mean to you? Uh, just... Don't get over emotional about things, you know, out with your out with your control. Um, it's about momentum. It is about your game. It is about, from a journalistic perspective, it's about how I control the week, what I do, making sure that I do everything that I can to deliver for my employers. But I will also, at the same time, look at what other people are doing and I will have an audit on a Friday night and go, your match report on, I'm going to Liverpool tonight, your match report wasn't as good as my counterpart at the Telegraph. Wednesday, I've done an interview, it wasn't as good as my counterpart at the Mail. So absolutely control that all you can do, but also be very aware of what is outside that. So you might consider those uncontrollables, how other people are performing but I'm absolutely very aware of how other people are performing because that will also drive me on. Very good answer. And my last, last question, 
Who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables? Leah Williamson. Are you able to pass that baton on? That's the that's the question. Uh, I know Leah. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll mention it to Arsenal. I'll find I, out whether she's a tennis player. I'm sure she's a tennis <laughs> tennis. Fan. I don't. I don't care if she's not. The, to get her on and the the subject and the conversation would be incredible. So I will be. I will be chasing you. I won't. I won't chase over the top, Henry, because I know you're a busy man. But I will certainly be dropping the the odd message. And as I said earlier, a big, big thank you. You're a, you're a top man. Really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, no, really enjoyed it. But you'll be spending 90 minutes persuading Leah to, to move to Gateshead. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That one, we'll wait. <laughs> I, I need to see how I feel about the, about the rights first. You know, let's get yeah. our heads around that first. Thanks, yeah. Henry. Brilliant. My pleasure, Dan. Now, I have to say, the first thing I need to say is, Henry, no more Manchester United. Jeez, I mean, how much... Do I need to listen to Manchester United? Now, since we've had that chat, Newcastle United are doing incredibly well. So long may that go on. And Henry has sent some nice words, actually. And I, I'm sure he won't mind me saying, but, you know, we had some terrible news a, a few years ago as, as, as my mum was diagnosed with, with mixed dementia. And, you know, it's obviously a challenging time for her, for for the family, for for my dad, who is looking after my amazing man back home in the northeast of England. And I just mentioned to Henry, I'd said, look, my dad absolutely loves your journalism. And a, a little message, I'm sure, would go a long way. And as busy as he is, I thought maybe he's forgotten. I didn't want to push him on it. But then a few nights ago, this beautiful message turned up in my WhatsApp inbox that I could forward on to my dad and I just want to say a big thank you out in the public there to, to Henry for that and I think it says so much about you as a man that you've come on you've given your time to us a tennis podcast and we've had great fun great conversation and that message I know means the world to my dad and and also to my mum who's listened to the message as well. So thank you very much for that, Henry. And 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 in terms of in terms of this one, like I, I said at the start, this was a bit of a challenge for me, you know, because I can talk tennis all day. I can actually talk football all day as well. But you know, being having someone that's coming on. Uh, a, a journalist, a highly respected journalist in, in a different sport and how we tied it together. It did bring a bit of a difference to, to, to the conversation. But once again, so many takeaways for me, you know, and, I, and, I, and the one I would like to touch on is is just the, the representation of, of the minorities, you know, across, across sport and you know, I know that women are absolutely not the minority, but often they are seen that or have been over the years within sport, which we know is absolutely wrong. Times are changing. Now, I would like to share, say that I, I did see something. Uh, uh, it wasn't so long ago. It was the Ballon d'Or was on and Vivian Miedema, a footballer, was was at the Ballon d'Or and there was pictures all over social media the next day saying Vivian with her guest. Now that guest happened to be the Beth Mead, the incredible Beth Mead who plays for for England and who was a big part of the the Euro champion winning team. And and you just wouldn't see that, you know, it would be like 
Yeah, a few years ago, David Beckham, someone being pictured with David Beckham and calling David Beckham the guest. You know, this is the subtle sexism that's still there. And, and, and And I reflect on this a lot because I feel very proud, and I've said this before on the podcast, of what a great job tennis do do in this. Can we do better? Of course we can, absolutely. You know, but if you, that wouldn't happen, you know, the, the best tennis players in the world, you know, we, we we know their names, you know, they are making great, great money, rightly so. You know, is it always equal? No, it is at the Grand Slams now, and that is fantastic. You know, and, and the more that that continues to be pushed, the more messages we get out there, and support that goes goes within it, but it starts at grassroots, and you know we want to mirror what other people are. And I saw a thing with Coco Goff recently. You know, she talked about Serena Williams, and she saw someone that looked like her, and she thought, "Well, I can be. If she can be, I can be." And and I, and I want to make a push as well for for women's tennis coaches. You know, we don't have enough. We don't have within the ecosystem. Yes, there's some great things that are happening within the world of tennis, and the quality's not there by any means. But we're doing a better job than a lot of the sports. But we it starts. Let's get the coaches out there. Let's get. You know, people being able to be represented and for, for women to be able, for girls to be represented across the board. And that is what we want for our beautiful sport. You know, it's great to see that football's starting, but they are way behind, in my opinion. They, they really are. So tennis people, let's keep spreading the message. All of you female tennis coaches out there, let's keep spreading the message. Let's get the little girls playing tennis as well. The likes of Judy Murray doing an incredible job with so many different campaigns and and, and ways that she's trying to bring more female coaches to the forefront. And that's my that's my little piece on it. Now, my last thing to say is just good luck. I, I spoke at the start uh, about the events coming up and it is a really proud moment for me you know when you when you coach and you've got a kind of a moody 10 year old who doesn't say a whole lot and you spend many years trying to trying to get them to open up you you're not sure as a coach if they are listening you know you you're you're working hard you don't always get the feedback as they go through then the teenage years and Lloyd Glasspool someone who I was fortunate enough to coach pretty much from the age of 10 through to 24 25 and to see him at the pinnacle the absolute pinnacle of of the ATP, playing in the ATP Tour Finals next week in Turin. And then alongside also Neil Skupski, who a big friend of the podcast and someone who I used to live with Kenny's brother at university and remember Neil from a very young age. It's it's so relatable and I hope people can see those stories and can see that actually if they can do it, then, then we absolutely can. So I'm hoping I might get a couple of days out in Turin next week. I've been speaking to the boys. If I can make my way over there, I certainly will. And I know lots of you are asking to speak to Lloyd and Harry about their, their year. So I'm hoping to get those guys on the podcast in the next couple of weeks. And then we have Robbie Koenig, the amazing South African commentator who was also a brilliant doubles player back in the day you know Robbie has a way with words and he is our next guest coming up next week so lots to look forward to but until next time I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables Control the Controllables